hello and welcome to Rare Nautical Reads with me, Chris Stanmore Major. In this episode, we're continuing with The Cruise of the Hippocampus by Alfred Loomis, and we're on Chapter 8. Chapter 8 Divers' Experiences. More than one of the numerous relatives of the crew of the Hippocampus have written on receipt of a cable message. So glad to know for the day at least that you are safe in port. Your cable gives me a feeling of security that I don't have when I know you are at sea. We never argue the point, but if any of us were so minded, he could write a most harrowing epistle on the danger of being safe in port. Before ever we put to sea, we smashed our mizzen boom against a dock in Gravesend Bay, and then nearly duplicated the experience in Norfolk, being still unaccustomed to the amount of sternway that a heavily built yawl reversing under power will carry. One night in Charleston, we parted a very necessary stern line and only missed crashing because I happened to be examining the line when it gave way. In Mayport, Florida, we had had our greatest disaster call of all when an avalanche of rocks descended upon us and in Cienfuegos, Cuba, chancing to anchor in three fathoms on the very edge of a six-fathom hole, we averted dragging into danger by our habitual good luck. And here, in Kingston, Jamaica, as will presently be related, we have had our troubles. But at Port Antonio, where we arrived on the morning of July 22nd, we actually were in perfect security. The harbour, a delight to the eye, is landlocked, and the trade wind being stopped by Blue Mountain does no more than carry showers of rain to streak fresh paint. So for three days, we enjoyed untroubled minds and feared nothing. Not that we ever fear anything to hear us talk to the swarms of visitors who came aboard while we were bending on our new suit of sails. One would have thought as the most insouciant and intrepid of mariners. We were cruising the tropics in the hurricane season, but what of it? So we talked and puttied and boasted and varnished and danced ashore and ate the fruits that were given us until the time came to move on for Kingston. The hippocampus rather resplendent in her new clothes and brightened woodwork. Another hour in port, I think, and one more boast would have brought us retribution. Even leaving at the psychological moment which is familiarly known as the nick of time, we so narrowly missed a humiliating smash-up that I still shudder to think of it. The excitement came at the close of a hard day in which we had bent on the mainsail, rove a new throat halyard from native line, and made all the last-minute preparations for departure. We had bade goodbye to our newfound friends and promised to hail them once more as we rounded Titchfield Peninsula, which restricts the entrance to Port Antonio and makes the western harbour the ideal anchorage that it is, and we were standing seaward in the lightest of airs, moving like a ghost through the placid dusk of a late evening. It is little smooth water sailing that we have enjoyed on this cruise and when we do get an opportunity to test Hippo's lightness of foot, we sacrifice time to take every possible advantage of it. So, drifting lazily with all sail set, we sighted the gleaming coal of a cigar on a nearby shore and called a last farewell. The ruby light disappeared and a calm voice floating across the water observed, You have a motor, why not start it? Simultaneously, Al Chambers, sitting serenely in the cockpit tiller in hand, experienced that helpless sensation which comes when steerage way is lost, and seconded the suggestion. 
I dropped into the cabin and woke the little palmer to life, but being still enthralled by the magic of the quiet night, I throttled it down to its slowest and climbed once more to my perch on the cabin house. Peace for another moment, and then Al's excited exclamation, gosh, or a word to that effect, we're being set stern first toward the rocks. Give her a little more gas, I said. There's a current here that's probably carrying us down. For an instant, I was as unperturbed as I was unaware of what had happened, but when I saw the shore of Navy Island looming more distinctly astern of us, I apprehended that the motor had reversed itself and lost no time in gaining the cockpit and shifting the gear lever from the go-ahead to the go-astern position, thus reversing again the rotation of the propeller. Paul, who had been admiring the beauty of the night from the bow, had the presence of mind not to let go the anchor, and when we were almost in scraping distance of the rocks, the yawl overcame her sternway and headed slowly into the channel. While this episode did not threaten us with physical danger, it came within an ace of doing mortal injury to our pride. To have a docile, well-trained motor stop and start itself in the reverse motion, carrying one unwittingly toward a reef less than an hour after he has likely poo-pooed the dangers of the deep, is more than the average mortal can endure, and I, for one, was glad when we had put the scene of our misadventure far behind and were out in the broad open spaces. Once clear of the land, we shut off the motor which previously had been stopped and restarted in the right direction, and whistled for the wind. For two hours it came in strength barely sufficient to hold us against the westerly current, but then it fanned itself into a sailing breeze, and by midnight we were slipping along under a single reef. The wind was against us, of course, for we were still working to the eastward, but as in a previous instance it had kindness to veer slightly as we neared the land, permitting a longer reach on the onshore tack. It was our plan to make what easting we could under sail, using the motor if necessary, to round the eastern end of Jamaica at nine o'clock or before the trade wind had attained its morning strength, and to that end we made a long beat to the northeast until we could smell Navassa Island seventy miles up the wind. Navassa, the historic home of millions of seabirds, is a lighted landmark sought by all navigators using the windward passage between Haiti and Cuba, and it is one of the few strategic points in the Caribbean Sea which betray their presence to the olfactory nerves. At 3.15 of the mid-watch we were several miles offshore and abreast a cape known as North East End, from which the land falls away sharply to the southeast until it terminates at Morant Point. And there we came about, hoping rather hopelessly to round the point without further tacking. Toward daylight, as we drew uncomfortably near the land, the wind obligingly shifted a little to the north, and Chambers, who had the watch, was able to hold his offing by periodically luffing her. So when the watch below came on deck at eight o'clock, clamouring for breakfast, we were agreeably surprised to see Morant Point light and the land's end a point or two forward of the beam. The first appearance on deck of a morning is generally an occasion of some repressed grumpiness, mitigated by a keen interest in our surroundings and the things which concern the boat's sailing. A glance around and aloft to determine the present and future condition of the sea, a question of the helmsman concerning the course and log reading, a cigarette rolled in the lee of the dinghy and smoked with deep inhalations, a perfunctory application of fresh water to the face and teeth, 
All these things are necessary before we feel ourselves to be the equal of the one of us who has watched while we have slept. His inevitable superiority is the more keenly felt when, as on this morning, we look over the side and see the jagged bottom a few fathoms beneath us. Yes, he's known about it all the time, has taken soundings, consulted the chart, and decided that he can hold the course without lessening the depth. And so we can, but at the expense of our aplomb. At 8.45, Morant Point Light bore a beam, and 20 minutes later, the wind freshening at the scheduled time, we had cleared the eastern extremity of Jamaica and were heading south and west. This was an event which, had we been provided with Jamaica rum, would have been duly celebrated, for, contrary to precedent and our doleful expectations, we had rounded the point without resorting to the motor. Moreover, we were now sailing with free sheets for almost the first time in three weeks. One has to head into wind and sea for this period of time, being constantly wet with spray, sleeping on damp blankets and navigating under exceptional difficulties to appreciate fully the exhilaration that we felt as we brought the wind behind us and squared away for Kingston. For the better part of the morning, I lay below luxuriating in the long, lumbering rush which is a characteristic of the hippo when she is running free, enjoying the novelty of an even keel and idly watching the spatter of drops whipped up from the sea by the main sheet to fall in iridescent sparkles through the open hatch. When in turn it became my turn to take the deck, I sampled another sensation, that of running before a forty-knot squall that overtook us with enveloping blackness. Hitherto, we have played extremely safe with squalls of wind, for the sails we wore were paper-thin from years of usage, and we had no desire to see them whipping into shreds when most we needed them. But now, under our new suit of ten-ounce duck, cut up and down rather short for just such emergencies, I felt minded to experiment, and when the wind, with its accompanying torrent of rain, overtook us, I held her on her course. It wasn't five minutes, however, before the rain had dampened my ardour and it was all hands to the sheets to flatten her against the wind. Then the squall passed on, spending its fury against the mountainous shore of Jamaica, and we sailed once more with the wind one point on the port quarter and my eye glued to the telltale flying from the main truck. This is a dangerous point of sailing, as anyone who has jibed in a seaway will attest, and it is a careless seaman who will watch only the compass card. Toward mid-afternoon, another squall assailed us, and this was of sufficient strength to make lowering the mainsail not only advisable, but necessary. Many salty amateur mariners have told me that they like best a sail when the lee rail is six inches under water, but they are cut from tougher canvas than we of the hippocampus. We can stand an inch or two of salt water on the lee deck, but when Paul's Bible and my Bowditch go waltzing together from cabin bookshelf to the bunk opposite, we have an indefinable yearning that is satisfied only when something has been lowered. This time, the new throat halyard rove in at Port Antonio and swelled by the first shower proved refractory and it took the combined strength of Al and me hauling on the luff to reeve it through the blocks. But no damage was done beyond a ruffling of our tempers and now the throat halyard does duty as a mainsheet and we have replaced it with a new line of finer stuff. Twilight, when we wore in past Port Royal at the entrance to Kingston Harbour, 
saw us at the conclusion of the best day's run that we have made since leaving Key West. We had logged 85 miles in less than 24 hours, running for half the time against the wind, and we were full of satisfaction and accomplishment. The sea toward evening had assumed such proportions that we could look back a hundred feet and up to the log rotator spinning madly on the crest above us, and we were taking it easily and without danger of being pooped. Earlier in the cruise, I had asked Al if he thought it advisable to take a leaf from the notebook of another long-distance cruiser and batten the cabin doors against any coma that might ramble aboard over our stern. Now that I have observed the little yawl under varying conditions of wind and sea, I believe that his answer to my suggestion, inclusive as it may seem, is yet the best one. If it ever gets that rough, I don't want to be aboard. Flying alphabet flag N from our starboard spreader to apprise the authorities at Port Royal that we had already been admitted to Pratique, i.e. past quarantine that is, we stood in by the remnant of the city that in the days of Sir Henry Morgan was termed the wickedest place on earth. Two and a half centuries ago, had the hippocampus then existed, we would have parted company with our gold plate and pieces of eight, but now the pirates, no less than their stronghold, lie buried beneath the sea, victims of an avenging earthquake, and we did not pay them even the courtesy of listening for the mythical submerged church bell that tolls their requiem. We were more practically occupied in following the lighted aids up the broad harbour to Kingston. The wind left us when we were within a few cable lengths of our desired anchorage off the Royal Jamaica Yacht Club, and so at ten o'clock we ended the run as we had begun it under power. It was the blackest of the night, more than the stirring of a guilty conscience that led us to anchor off the state penitentiary, but there, when the daylight came, we found ourselves the objects of many longing glances from the trustees working in the prison yard. We awoke to find the water glassy smooth. What more natural than to assume that the hook we always use and the scope we always give would hold us while we trooped ashore to get our mail? At any rate, we did assume it, and nine o'clock saw us rowing blithely down the bay to the boat landing of the Myrtle Bank Hotel, which is famed, I may add irreverently, for its rum punches. Ashore, there were calls to be made on the British port collector who wouldn't accept my word that Hippocampus is a yacht entitled to yacht privileges, and had to be pacified with a letter from the delightful and hospitable American consul C.L. Latham, on the consul himself, on the secretary of the Tourist Association, who was anxious that we view Jamaica through friendly eyes. And while these calls were being made, the sea breeze, as the landlubbers call the southeast trade, was sweeping up the streets of Kingston, blowing dust impartially into the eyes of the just and the unjust. Along toward noon, I called up the yacht club to ask the caretaker whether he could see the hippocampus and whether she was standing the gaff. She's all right now, he replied, and the qualifying adverb of time so disquieted me that I asked the two Joes to return aboard while I paid another call ashore. They, as I learned when I joined them on the tossing, quivering hippo, received at the Myrtle Bank a belated message to return immediately to the ship and determined in one glance that they could not row the dinghy upwind to our anchorage, piled therefore into a hack and hurried to the yacht club. They were greeted there by Harry and Arthur O'Toole, sons of the superintendent of prisons, 
who rowed them to the yawl and related the danger that our careless seamanship had exposed her to. Hardly had we left the boat in the morning when the trade wind sprang up and in a short time the hippocampus was lugubriously dragging anchor toward the seawall. The O'Toole boys, accustomed to the strength and persistence of the wind, lost no time in gathering together a crew of prisoners and putting out in a motor launch. For a moment they mauled the yawl under whose bows she drifted by the scantest margin of safety, but then, fearing that the weight of the two boats would drag the schooner's anchor, they hauled in our own, towed us further out from shore and moored us with our heavy hook and with another requisitioned from the prison launch. It sounds simple in the telling, but feeling the force of the wind against my cheek and seeing the viciousness of the waves breaking against the masonry wall, I knew that the O'Toole boys had saved the hippocampus from an untimely end. The chapter of our day's troubles was not yet written, as Al and I learned when we went in the calm of the late evening to the Myrtle Bank landing to pick up our tender and row it home. The painter was where we had left it, but the dink was gone. Naturally enough, Hippocampus Minor, as a surgical friend had dubbed the dink, had followed the example of Hippocampus Major and started a cruise of its own. Being now somewhat accustomed to the vein of good luck that streaks all our misfortunes, we were not in the least surprised to find that the first boat we hailed in the darkness belonged to the waterfront police, who took us aboard and in less than five minutes of haphazard searching rowed us to the spot where, high and dry, some kind Samaritan had beached the dink. Thanking the police and crossing their palms with silver, we took possession of the truant and returned aboard. Perhaps the northern reader, the navigator of civilised bodies of water like Long Island Sound and Buzzards Bay, will care to know something of Kingston Harbour and of the trade wind that makes it ideal for sailing and vile for anchoring. The bay, lying east and west, is about eight miles long and two miles wide, and is shaped somewhat like a racetrack that has been distorted by an earthquake. Having at its southwest side a deep, narrow opening, it is otherwise separated from the sea by a long arm of sand known as the Palisados, where in years past grew a palisade of palm trees. Now the Palisados is bare and interposes no barrier against the wind which sweeps in from seaward. Port Royal occupies the extremity of this spit. Kingston's waterfront is about midway of the bay on the mainland and the Royal Jamaica Yacht Club, where the local sailing craft assemble, is approximately a mile to eastward of the city and three and a half miles from the upper end of the Palisados. Before the last hurricane, a partly submerged hulk formed a breakwater for the club anchorage, but that slipped into deep water under the buffeting of wind and wave, and now there is no shelter. The morning after the dragging of the hippocampus, we were all on deck, basking in the stillness of the bay and air and talking with the O'Toole boys who had swum out bearing gifts of pineapples and coconuts. Little Gwyneth was there too, a 12-year-old mermaid whose last name I forget who, during our stay in Kingston, has visited us daily and delighted us with the imperious manner in which she rules her court of adolescent mermen. Suddenly, Harry exclaimed, Here comes the doctor, and pointed seaward. Expecting a visit from the quarantine officials, we paralleled his glance and saw instead a slight riffling of the bay's surface. The trade wind, added Arthur, 
It comes every morning between nine and ten and blows like the juice. We watched its coming until we were interrupted by the prison launch, arrived to retrieve the anchor, and by my decision to put over our light hook in addition to the heavy one. On subsequent moorings, however, we have watched the daily awakening of the trade and have found it always the same and invariably fascinating. First comes the faint disturbance of the surface to which Harry had called our attention. That passes and is succeeded by a brief interval of calm. Then another agitation of the water, well over to the seaward side of the bay, a caress of the rising wind which is suddenly duplicated in a dozen places. Soon the ruffled patches merge and the effect of the wind, but not the wind itself, is seen to advance in a long line across the bay. Until now, the air in the vicinity of the hippocampus has been breathless and we have idly revolved around our anchor road, but soon we feel a vagrant breath of air against our bare arms and shoulders. The yawl, like an animal on the alert, ceases her purposeless movement and points seaward, facing an unknown danger. The advancing ripple, now augmented, brushes past us. The hollow tubes of the mizzen turnbuckles whistle a shrill defiance. The hippocampus tentatively dips her forefoot, and we are embarked upon our daily tussle with the wind. Starting leisurely, by mid-afternoon the trade has whipped itself up to a 30-mile gate, and the waves, sweeping across the bay, alternately dip our bowsprit and bumpkin under. Sometimes, as on the day after our arrival in Kingston, the wind attains a 40-mile strength, and then the O2 boys, youthful water dogs that they are, stand by in their bathing suits to give us help where it is needed. Generally, by six in the evening, the breeze has died away and the bay resumes its placidity, a condition maintained until the next morning's visitation of the doctor. Sailing races never become drifting matches in Kingston, but, to the contrary, more than one has been won by the last man to remain afloat. This is all very well for those who are born and brought up in Kingston and know no respite from the tropical trades, but if ever I visit this delightful island by yacht again, I shall moor my craft in the snug harbour at Port Antonio and journey to the capital by rail. In a previous paragraph, I mentioned a hulk that had been used as a breakwater for the yacht club Anchorage. For years it has been lost, but we have found it. On our first day in port, following our seance with the dragging anchor and our rescue by the O'Tools, the two Joes returned aboard, got up anchor and then manoeuvring off the yacht club, let go at precisely the spot indicated by the kindly stranger ashore. Our 75-pound anchor, descending with the uncanny magnetic attribute of a lodestone, drew itself to the submerged wreck and became entangled in its iron ribs. We were more securely anchored than we knew, and the other hook which we put out the following morning as a precaution was only an aggravation of our difficulty. That evening, meaning to haul in the light anchor to prevent the two lines from fouling overnight, we found that it would not budge, and although we were then unaware of the existence of the hulk, we surmised that our customary import luck had got the better of us. So, two days later, when we had completed arrangements for hauling out the yawl to paint her bottom, we buoyed both lines and sought the West End Wharf of the United Fruit Company, leaving in abeyance the disentanglement of the anchors.
native voice at home in the water as on dry land, placed us over a cradle and blocked our keel. And in a few minutes, a gang of men sweating profusely over a windlass had hauled us up the marine railway. Then we got into difficulties with Jamaican law. Being out of the water, we found that we shouldn't be there, but being out, we would be permitted to remain overnight, provided we were forthwith fumigated at a cost of five guineas. Otherwise, we must launch again before six o'clock to frustrate the rats, which, it would appear, always leave the barren interior of Little Yule's between the hours of sunset and sunrise, and spread pestilence among the unsuspecting inhabitants of the island. Rather than break the law, or, a more important consideration, pay five guineas for fumigation, we determined to do a two-day's job in one, and working uninterruptedly, we were actually able to paint the sides and bottom in less than six hours. This was the first time we had hauled out since our initial launching in April, and we were relieved to find that aside from a slight softening of the seams near the spot which had received the impact of the 10-ton boulder in our accident at Mayport, our underbody was uninjured. Moreover, thanks to its liberal coating of bronze paint, the bottom was as clean as if we had taken the water three days instead of three months previously. This, I think, speaks volumes for the efficiency of the bronze composition, inasmuch as for two of the three months, we have cruised through waters in which the Toreador and marine growths are notoriously destructive. Going off the ways in the late afternoon, we moored to a barge nearby and resignedly awaited the passing of Sunday and Emancipation Day, August the 1st, on which the locals celebrate the liberation of their forefathers from a state of slavery. On Tuesday afternoon, following a luncheon at the Jamaica Club, as guests of Commodore W. Baggett Gray of the Royal Jamaica Yacht Club, Al and I went aboard the American tug I.J. Merritt and sought an interview with her salvage captain, J.J. Johnson. He is an enthusiastic yachtsman, the part owner of a local sloop that has raced and won in northern waters, and in his official capacity, he has salvaged nearly all the American yachts that have stranded on Caribbean shores during the last 20 years. We laid before him our petty troubles, two anchors and their lines hopelessly entangled in a rack, and he was as interested and concerned as he would have been at the tail of a palatial yacht gone aground on Racondor Reef. More, he was sympathetic, and out of the kindness of his heart, offered to send down a diver for the mere cost of his services. This cost was so much better than the regular fee of $25 a dive that we left the tug greatly elated, promising to return early the following morning and lead the way to the Boyd Cables. Strangely enough, we were as good as our word, although a life of cruising begets bad habits in the matter of punctuality, and six o'clock saw us shoving off with Captain Johnson in the diving launch, the hippocampus looking pretty small alongside the IJ Merritt. Arriving off the yacht club, we were pleased to find the boy still afloat, and were yet more delighted after a spasm of bubbling from the bottom of the bay to be told by the diver's helper that we might haul away on the heavy anchor. A few minutes later, the other line was liberated, and long before the doctor had paid his morning call, we were breakfasting aboard the Merritt, our anchors on Hippo's deck, and their lines neatly coiled by members of the tug's crew. Gratifying as it is to be the recipient of kindnesses such as these accorded us by Captain Johnson and his fellows of the sea, it is still more pleasant to be privileged to mention them in print. 
and this chapter cannot conclude without representation of our interview at the offices of the United Fruit Company when we called to pay our hauling out bill. We've come, said Al, to find out what we owe you for hauling us out last Saturday. Well, did we haul you out? asked the manager. I'd forgotten. Well, you certainly did, and you'd better take our money while we have it. Well, let me see. You've come a long way, and you may never get to where you're going to, and the cost will be nothing. They may have hurricanes in the tropics, though we've yet to see one, and sharks and all manner of predatory influences, but the hearts of the inhabitants of Jamaica are in the right place. Well, that's the end of today's chapter, and we're going to continue with the story tomorrow. Now, if you haven't already, consider please going over to patreon.com forward slash the mariner. You can follow the link in the podcast description. And there we have a growing community of people just like yourself who are interested in sailing, interested in seamanship, and interested to learn more techniques and tips that can help their time on their boat be safer and more enjoyable. So at $5 a month, your donation directly contributes to me being able to produce the podcasts and keeps the lights on, keeps the wheels going round. But if you are interested in developing your skills further, then you may be interested to increase your contribution to the next level up, to the mate level. And there for $20 a month, you get access to the one hour professionally produced seamanship training videos that we do each month which drill down and look at specific aspects of seamanship and safety at sea, get into the nitty gritty of it and uh, share with you information that can make your time at sea both more enjoyable and safer. So if any of that sounds interesting, go along to patreon.com forward slash the mariner or follow the link in the podcast description and become part of the community. But that's all for today. So I hope that wherever you are and whatever you're doing, you are safe and sound. And I look forward to speaking to you in the next one. Cheers. Cheers.